0: Certainly within in financing, investors don't want to invest in dirty assets anymore. So your green credentials, your ability to show that you're walking the talk is fundamental in terms of, of how lenders and how investors approach you as an asset moving forwards and are willing to keep their money within the assets as well. So businesses have to do this for the long term stability.
1: Hi, I'm Belded Mankus. Welcome to The Purposeful Strategist. Podcast that shifts the conversation about purpose and strategy from what organizations should do to what business leaders are doing and what they've learned along the way. Sustainability and growth can seem like they are in conflict. In this episode, Diane Crowther, CEO of High Speed One, describes how their purposeful strategy has allowed them to have both. Well, Diane, thank you so much for joining us on The Purposeful Strategist. Uh, maybe just to kind of get us underway, you could tell us a bit about yourself and about HS1. Hi,
0: I'm um, the chief exec of HS1, with uh, the UK's only high-speed railway. Um, I've worked at HS1 for five years. I've worked in rail in the sector for 35 years. I've been very fortunate, I've been able to work in infrastructure, I've run train operating companies, I've worked at headquarters, so I know quite a bit about the sector and working for HS1 is a great opportunity to bring all of that experience together.
1: Mm -hmm. And for anybody who might not know, could you just tell us a bit about HS1 and kind of what it is and where it is and what it does?
0: Yeah, so uh, we're a government-led concession. Um, but owned by Private Equity. And we operate 109 kilometres from London St. Pancras down to the Channel Tunnel Railway in Folkestone. We uh, operate and maintain the route. And we also operate and maintain four stations, including the iconic London St. Pancras International, which is well known and well loved. And uh, we're very proud as part of our portfolio.
1: Mm-hmm. So if you look at HS1, what would you say its purpose is, and how did you go about developing, clarifying, whatever the right word is for that purpose?
0: Our purpose has really been very much um, driven by growth, and it's to provide opportunities and to support the communities. Investment in, in any rail project is always high, it's expensive. Um, so, the main purpose that me and my organization have is to kind of make sure that we, we kind of bring the value out of the investment in the asset to kind of make sure that we provide a sustainable railway for the future, but also improve the sustainability of a lot of the communities that we go through. We position ourselves very much as the green gateway to Europe. Sustainability in the last five years has become increasingly important and high-speed rail has got quite an important part to play in that, not just from city centre to city centre, but you know, also along the lines of route that it goes. We are part of the transformational journey in Ebsfleet and, and the North Kent area. So housing, uh, also the potential for uh, a new theme park, which will bring jobs, employment and regeneration to a fairly deprived part of North Kent. If you then look at some of the legacy that was left post the Olympics in, in 2012, High speed route goes through Stratford Stratford International is one of our stations and Stratford is, is fast becoming the you know the second city of London there are a lot of businesses relocating there and it's quite a vibrant community and economy and you know high speed has had a lot to do with that we celebrated our 10th anniversary 2 or 3 years ago and we interviewed a lot of businesses that had relocated along HS1 because of HS1, because of the high-speed links. So it has kind of transformed lives, it's improved productivity, it's brought environmental and economic benefits. And what we're saying at the moment is it's still got an awful lot more to offer. We only utilise our asset by up to 50%. So all of the fantastic benefits that we've delivered in the first sort of 10 to 12 years of operation, we're saying, well, fill the railways up, run more trains, and those benefits can be doubled. Uh, you know, a billion pound a year to the UK economy on tourism. Eurostar, our international operator, have cornered the international markets of Paris and and, and Brussels. 80% market share pre-COVID recently launched a a new return service to Amsterdam and and they're being quite bullish about that. And what we've seen during the pandemic is uh, passenger demand has bounced back and it's bounced back quite quickly. People like the product. They like travelling Uh, you know, on high speed trains. So we still think there's an awful lot of opportunity and further
1: benefits that can be leveraged. And that sort of the green gateway, the economic leverage, was that something that was sort of part of HS1 all the way from the beginning? Or have you sort of had to go through some process of rethinking what it's all about and kind of redefining it?
0: I think with any asset over its kind of life, that the purpose changes because you're subject to sort of so many macro factors. Um, I remember when the original idea of running domestic services was muted, the French thought we were nuts, you know, you know a commuter railway on a high-speed route you know you're stupid kind of thing but the domestic services have been an incredible success pre-covid they were growing year on year by seven and a half percent where people were trading price for journey time improvements you know ashford to london in under 45 minutes their massive productivity benefits and people were prepared to invest in that um, and in fact before covid we were starting to talk about additional rolling stock and more services for the high-speed routes, then that will come back. But like many businesses and many parts of the transport sector at the moment, it's just we've got to hunker down and we've got to get through the next sort of two to three years. So, yeah, th- things have changed. Certainly with HS1, we've always had you know a strategic objective has been about growth. And that goes back to the asset utilisation and also the you know the fact that we're owned by private equity. So, you know, big part of my role is is to provide returns to shareholders and really, really utilise the asset. So growth is clearly a key strategic objective. Eurostar themselves have grown year on year as well pre-COVID. So we know that the appetite is there. London and Paris are two of the most visited cities in the whole of the world. There is a fixed link that's connecting them. We saw a huge amount of patronage from the North American market, the South Asian market, you know, and again, that, that will come back again. But what we want to look at as well is new destinations. And a key part of the work that we do on HS1 is how do we make those new destinations possible? How do we address sort of some of the potential barriers to new destinations and make the whole system seamless and easy to use from a passenger and a train
1: operator perspective. So when you say new destinations, is that, you know, sort of going through London and further north in the UK? Or is that other cities in Europe? Or is that both? Or
0: No, it's other cities in Europe. Um so uh, we 've looked at proof of concept for Bordeaux um, Frankfurt is always on the agenda quite clearly, uh, but sort of some of the other destinations that you know we, we've we 've looked at are places like Geneva. Uh, generally, we find through research that we've done that there's a six hour cut off time. So people are prepared to travel six hours by train to get somewhere. So if you draw a circle around London and <laughs> sort of say, where can I get to in six hours by train? That gives you the destinations that you target. Um, and also, you know, trying to understand if that market demand is there.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so if you take that work around new destinations, what's the process you actually go through to kind of reinvent the purpose and to think about the strategy?
0: you need to assess the market demand in the first place. So how much demand is there and how much could there potentially be? And then you have to put yourself in the shoes of any potential train operator and look at, well, how would they go about it? And what we've tried to do is adopt a similar model to what airports do. So rather than wait for, you know, airlines to come to them, what you'll find is, is you know, international airports will be knocking on the doors of airlines sort of saying, have you thought about this? Come to destination A. You don't want to be going to B anymore because it's difficult running, uh, you know, a train through five countries to try to get you know to another destination. There's five countries that have. You know, different rules, different commercial practices, different languages. So what we've been doing as infrastructure managers is working with our adjacent infrastructure managers and developing corridors and sort of saying, right, okay, here's a corridor. This is how much we think it would cost. This is the discount we'd be prepared to give you for, you know, for a new journey. This is what we think the market demand could be. This is how we would address sort of some of the border challenges and security. So, effectively, what we're doing is we're trying to do the feasibility and the thinking up front because it's not a case of a railway asset, build it and they will come because they haven't. <laughs> okay. So, you, you've got to be a bit more proactive um, and a little bit more commercial to. Uh, you know, to be able to sort of say, you know, come on down, come and use this asset. These are some of the benefits that this is where we can kind of help to remove some of the previous barriers. And again, that's good for me. You have to take a long-term perspective because we have a long-term concession. So putting, you know, the hard yards in up front means you get the better returns towards the end of the concession as well.
1: Hmm. I mean, you sort of touched on it, but the whole kind of climate change, net zero agenda, really big, of course. Would you say, Every organization has to put that front and center, or is that sort of, yeah, it's something, but it's not the main thing? No, sustainability
0: has to be front and center of any organization. Yeah, the work we've done on HS1 in the last sort of two to three years just reinforces that from my perspective. We started our sustainability journey just over two, three years ago, and the more we've got into it, the more work we've done, the more analysis that we've undertaken. We're not doing it because it's a nice thing to do. We're doing it because it absolutely makes kind of strong business sense. But you need to do the research. You can't do everything based our sustainability approach on the principles put forward by the United Nations. We've got six principles that we follow. There's over 20 that you can kind of select, but it's finding the six that are relevant to you as an organisation. And obviously, being a railway, we're an electric railway. So energy usage in terms of sources is quite fundamental. So a key part of our strategy was moving over to um, renewable sources of electricity. So overnight, we reduced our carbon footprint quite significantly. And uh, one of the things we're now looking at is rather than um, using RIGOs, uh, which is guarantees of origin, is we're now sort of saying, right, well, how can we actually produce renewable energy ourselves. Um, So that's a slightly different area because renewable energy will run out because there are limited sources. So as demand goes up, you have to create a bigger supply. And what we need to do, big businesses, big companies, is start thinking about, okay, so how do we generate that supply? And it may well be that we have to invest ourselves up front, but you're investing for the sort of longer-term benefit in the future. So energy is, is a big part of our strategy in terms of what we're doing.
1: Mm-hmm. Sorry, Dan, you used a term, I, I don't know, and maybe some of our listeners might not, regos.
0: Yeah, so it's um, renewable energy guaranteed origin. So you effectively get a certificate that says the energy that I am purchasing comes from a renewable resource. So that could be a wind farm, it could be solar. Uh, but you, the energy that you receive comes from that renewable resource. Now, regos will eventually run out because there won't be enough. There won't be enough sort of solar power. There won't be enough kind of wind power being produced. So there has to be this step change to be able to replace fossil fuel. Um, you know, from from an energy supply perspective, and that's very much where we are now. Sort of saying, so, well, how do we do that? What's the route that we need to go down? So it's almost, you know, it's a dynamic policy that we're following rather than, oh, well, we've ticked that box. You almost need to sort of say, right, what's the next step that we have to take?
1: Mm. And would you look to produce that renewable energy sort of from the footprint of the asset you've got or look to somewhere else in the world for that?
0: And it's an option, Uh, you know, wouldn't it be great if we had, you know, big solar farms down the side of HS1? You know, there are numerous options. And what you're sort of seeing now across the industry is, you know, small changes where people are really starting to sort of think differently about how their energy um, source supplies are sourced. And it's not just about the source, it's about your usage. We're uh, uh, doing a scheme at the moment, where we do regenerative braking, that basically reuses and recycles any energy lost um, from a traction perspective. So if you start pulling all of these initiatives together collectively, you do start reducing your overall kind of carbon footprint. Now, there's other areas as well in terms of how do I build a fossil fuel renewal? So if I'm going to build a new station, then how do I do that Um, so that I keep my carbon footprint down. So you you have to start putting that thinking right into your supply chain at the beginning for your procurement principles, uh, you know, right from the start. Because we've got a long-term concession, um, our gas boilers at St Pancras are due for renewal in the future, so we're already starting to sort of say, right, we won't be renewing like for like, we'll be doing something different where we can use a renewable source. Again, we're doing that in a grade one listed station. So starting to do the thinking on that type of thing now is fundamental. And then it's, you know, how how do we connect with our communities? There's lots of opportunities from a circular economy perspective where any cast offs that we have from a station perspective, you know, could be utilised within the local community. So laptops, for example, food waste, um, from our retail outlets, so so all of that is is about kind of reducing waste and making sure that you know ev- everything that we do has that kind of sustainable connection within it.
1: Mm-hmm. One of the things some people talk about is whether the green agenda, the net zero agenda, and the growth agenda, the profit agenda, can kind of work together, or whether sort of in. You know, there may be some early wins where they go together, but after you get past that point, they're inevitably going to be at odds. What's your take on that?
0: Uh, I think you have to look at it from a system perspective. Um, and when I say system, I mean government, I mean businesses, I mean communities, the whole kind of geopolitical sphere. And I think things will change. So so I think there will be policy changes that will be made, implemented to support a more sustainable at lifestyle so in many countries you start to sort of see carbon taxes come in so user actually pays for you know the amount of carbon that, that you bring into the environment we've seen recently the shift towards supporting the electric vehicles within the uk and i think what we need to do is look at the overall kind of integrated transport system so, so how does the whole transport system integrate to reduce carbon it's not either or it's about you know how do you work together within transport to enable people to make sustainable journey choices and therefore do your bit towards reducing the carbon footprint, protecting climate change, and then making the right decisions, not just for businesses, but also for the wider communities that it serves. I think many businesses are now starting to understand that actually, to be a sustainable business, you might actually have to forego some level of profit in the short term, forego... Uh, You know, any any level of distributions in the short term so that you can protect the long term sustainability of the business. Those will be sort of some of the difficult decisions around the boardroom table that are going to be made. If you look at HS1, for example, when we moved over to um, a renewable energy source, it was more expensive, but we consulted with our customers, the train operators, it matched their strategic objectives, so we were able to do it. But that's a great example where initially it's a higher cost, but you know it's the right thing to do to be able to sort of deliver long-term benefits.
1: Mm. If you think about the journey you and HS1 have been on over the last, let's say, five years, you know, particularly around this question of thinking through your purpose, thinking through your strategy, how do you respond to the whole green agenda? When you think about that journey, is there anything in there you're particularly proud of that you think, boy, that was us at our best? Um,
0: I think moving over to 100% renewable energy, uh, being the first UK um, railway to do that it was quite a proud moment because we did it. <laughs> you know, we did it, we had a plan, we implemented it, and we're applauded for it. So that was a big macro thing that we did. There's other you know great things we've done as well in, in, in terms of our biodiversity um, approach. So we've um, partnered with um, the Kent Wildlife Trust. Uh, And it seems like really small things, but to be able to give net biodiversity gain by by 2030, um, that doesn't just happen overnight. It has to be planned. It's something that, you know, our teams and the supply chain are absolutely passionate about. And this year, a I think it was a lizard orchid was found on some of our land on part of our footprint. First time it's been seen in Kent for over 20 years. That's partly because of the biodiversity arrangements that have been put in place, how we do land management. Um, so again, it's when you get like sort of some small wins like that, you know that what you're doing makes a difference, you know, and it's worthwhile. You know, and all of that is really important from a reputational perspective. ESG is becoming increasingly important, certainly within in financing, investors don't want to invest in dirty assets anymore, so your green credentials Your ability to show that you're walking the talk is fundamental in terms of of how lenders and how investors approach you as an asset moving forwards and are willing to keep their money within the asset as well. So businesses have to do this for their long-term stability. So that too is a great example of where everything gets integrated. So for the first time this year, we launched or published our first ever ESG report. It's quite exciting, really, because you start pulling things together and our team now talk about sustainability, about making sustainable choices, sustainable decisions, rather than, oh, we're just going to go and do that. So it offers a wonderful framework within which to operate and it helps people understand why they get out of bed in the morning because that's really important. So I'm getting out of bed in the morning to make a difference.
1: You know, you haven't said this, and maybe it's just honesty on your part, but it does strike me that at least on a number of things you've talked about, HS1 is sort of pioneering, pathfinding, showing the way. Do you see that as part of your, I won't even say purpose necessarily, though, maybe, but sort of part of your role?
0: Yeah, part of our vision. Uh, we talk about caste, C-A-S-T. So the way we do things in HS1 is we seek to be contemporary. So that's always up to date, always ahead of the curve. We seek to be agile so being able to respond to market changes customer requirements but doing it quickly not in a labored way which so often the rail sector is associated with we like to be sustainable you know sustainability is, is, is a fundamental part of our vision and then we, we you know we, we aim to be trusted so transparency again a key part of sort of sustainability so that the whole of the ethos in, in, in high speed one that trickles down from our mission into our vision is contemporary, agile, sustainable and trusted. You know, my team understand that and the supply chain understand that because it's a two way street and that's how we want people to behave.
1: Yeah. yeah. One one of the things you've sort of touched on, and it's a little hard to know where things are going to go, but you see COVID is having the potential to yet again, face you with the need to kind of rethink what it's all about? Or do you see this more as it's just a bit of a blip and we'll, you know, once we get on the other side of that, it'll be sort of back to normal service?
0: Oh, 100%. We have to rethink everything and, and almost forget a lot of what we've done in the past. So what, what impact has, has COVID had? So we know it, it's it's created a structural change in passenger behavior. So in the past, railways traditionally we had commuters, we had people that travelled regionally, we had business travellers, and then we had leisure travellers. Now we just have passengers. No one's going to be commuting five days a week. Nobody's going to be buying an annual season ticket. So the whole cash flow from a rail perspective has changed fundamentally, where everybody bought their season ticket just before the January fare increases. And so the whole of the industry sort of Big influx of cash, not going to happen anymore. So, so you have to really, really rethink really that. So, so the industry has got to get its head around, What does this structural shift mean? What are future demand patterns going to be? And how does that then flow down into? Well, how do I maintain the railway? How do I renew it? Where's my peak demand now? And what we're seeing across the industry is leisure markets coming back. So Saturdays and Sundays, incredibly busy, more busy than before but commuter markets not. So that then, you ask the question, so when should I be shutting the railway to do my maintenance? You know, traditionally, it's been Saturdays and Sundays, and you're not going to do that now, because those are going to be your busiest days. So we have to rethink all of that. I think we also have to really think through, how do we use digitisation and technology to drive productivity and efficiency in the sector? And that's a great opportunity for us, to really challenge some of the more traditional way of doing things how can we technology enable how can we take out like so many layers how can we use uh, things like digital twins you know artificial learning to really really take out sort of some of those cost layers the industry is not affordable at the moment we've had a huge revenue shock so we've really got to look at our cost base and we've got to look at it quite hard and if we're not contemporary, agile, sustainable, and trusted as an industry, guess what? Other people will come in and fill that place. So we, we've really, really got to take a long, hard look at ourselves.
1: Yeah, yeah. You talked a lot just in this last bit about the industry. And I wouldn't disagree with the word you've said. But it does seem to me that, you know, high speed one is this Interesting little island. I don't know if it's unique, but definitely this interesting little island in the big network rail industry world that seems to me comes at things differently. I just wonder what's that dynamic like?
0: Um HS One we always try to position ourselves in the sense of here to help. So we're very happy to be guinea pigs. So we do recognise we're part of a bigger network, and that's an important network. But what we're prepared to do is offer up our strengths. And in return, we steal lots of good stuff, you know, from the core sector as well. You know, because Network Rail has done some amazing things, um, you know, on on its digital journey. It's done some great stuff on sustainability as well. It just it takes a little bit longer to implement because it's a much, much bigger beast than we are. So being able to have that exchange of information is fundamental. And that's exactly what we're going to be putting forward as part of the call for evidence on the recently announced um, GBR consultation. We're not arrogant and we're not, we know how to do this and you don't. Absolutely not. We are part of a big network. Being part of that big network is fundamental to our success moving forwards. And if the rest of the rail sector fails, so does HS1. So, you know, we see it as being mutually kind of supportive and mutually compatible. Uh, In the same way that we work really positively with HS2 as well. We often say in HS1, we've never had good ideas in our lives, but we're, we're pretty good at stealing other people's and <laughs> so using them for our own. And that, that's what we want the team to be. We want them to be curious and, and say, well, what about this? What if I use that here? You know, can I affect change? Because, you know, you need to be curious. You need to be disruptive because that's when you start to deliver change.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, anything in the journey of the last few years that either didn't go as well as you'd like or you wish you could kind of do it over?
0: Um I think it's just been beholden is probably the best way of describing it to to macro processes. And the biggest thing that has been stop start stop start for HS One is the awarding of domestic franchises. We have an international customer, Eurostar. They're open access operator, very commercial. They get on with it, and we can have commercial conversations with Eurostar. Uh, you then have our domestic operator, who operate under you know government let contract. And that franchise has been tendered, almost awarded, tendered again, almost awarded. So you're always then resetting. You end up with then kind of like one year strategies and, you know, finding it difficult to sort of set what the 10 year plan could look like. It's it's how can we break that cycle? And we're in that cycle at the moment as well, where we have a government that is strongly focused on cost, not revenue. If it's strongly focused on cost, it will be making decisions on cost rather than growth. You have to bring the P&L together. You know, you have to bring cost and revenue together to enable those balanced decisions to be made. And my fear is, is uh, we will see the industry in a managed decline um, and then spend quite a bit of time going, how on earth did we let that happen? But there are sort of so many external pressures on you know, spending at the moment, but I think it, it probably just needs industry voices to sort of say, "Well oh, no, hang on a minute. Do we really want to do this? If we don't stop this, what does our railway look like in three years' time, or what does our railway look like in five years' time? What would demand look like so if, if we don't change the status quo?" So I guess it's, it's having that stronger voice being more assertive about you know challenging the decision makers around what's happening; otherwise, we'll just drift into an outcome that nobody wants. Passengers won't want it. Government won't want it. You know, and certainly that the people that operate within the railway system won't want it.
1: Mm-hmm. Any tips or suggestions for other leaders who are kind of wrestling with purpose, strategy, the current sort of challenges of a fairly disruptive world? Any. Th- thoughts for other people
0: yeah look outside when you're under attack <laughs> which is how it feels i think with covid at the moment sometimes you've got two instincts yeah it's, it's to hide you hide or you turn around and fight you know if, if a lion is attacked it puts up its defense mechanisms and it, it surveys it's you know what's going on it does 360 degrees you know, if a smaller animal is attacked, it, it runs down into a hole. So as leaders, you've got to make sure you are that liar that's looking outside and looking at what the opportunities are. Because if you run down into the hole, you're going to stay there for a long, long time. And it's then about, you know, forming alliances. And that's a key part of what sort of sustainability is about. It's about thinking differently, because if you keep doing the same stuff that you've been doing, the same outputs are going to come. Which is why you have to challenge yourselves and get others to challenge you about how you do stuff. So why have you done it that way? Well, we've always done it that way. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> you should never challenge that. It's for the industry and for leaders to be open to that type of thinking. And certainly within HS1, we challenge my team, you know, to go and have a look outside, go and look at what's going elsewhere, not just in our sector but in other industries and try to bring it back into our workplace so that we we can use that learning and use that experience. And I think that would be my main advice to leaders, is look outside, look outside, don't retreat, even though that might be the safest, (laughs) most comfortable thing for you to do.
1: That's great. And over the last five years, what would you say the impact on you personally has been? How are you different as a leader?
0: Um, I'm far more reflective and more aware of how I communicate with my team and uh, and my suppliers, so the people in, in the wider team. Uh, I think what I've spent the last 18 months doing is is trying to put myself in their shoes more often and really thinking about, right, what does this mean for them? You know, from a, a commercial perspective, a language perspective, and just an environment perspective, you know, 18 months of, lockdown, in out, in out, tier four, tier three, eat out, help out. You can go outside but you can only go in groups of six or seven. You know, it has its toll. It's difficult to understand. You know, if you're a young and single living in a you know home of multiple occupancies in London, it's not been much fun. So putting yourself in your team shoes, your customer shoes, has been really, really important, certainly during the whole of the pandemic. And actually kind of thinking through what matters and what is it that I can do that you know will make things easier we've done a lot of that in hs1 with our wider team we're only as good as our people so if you're not taking the people with you and they're not good corporate athletes so if you're not investing in that team it's, it's going to be much much harder to be ahead of the curve so investment in your team and being more reflective and really thinking through uh, what that means has is, is been fundamental i think we saw in the early days of covid didn't we where you know, some companies just got it so badly wrong and just lost their teams and lost their organisations. But I think that that's also the challenge in the fun, isn't it? That's what you know, leaders love. It's the uncertainty where you can go, oh, hey, all bets are off, you know, what am I going to do here? <laughs> so what can I have a go at and really, really think differently? Um, that's what gets me out of bed in the morning. You know, what we do at HS1 is that great mix between you know, a commercial and and private sector challenge, but also providing a public service. And you don't get the opportunity to do that in many careers or many kinds of employments.
1: Well, Diane, I'm really energized by what you've had to say here. I wanna thank you again for joining us. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Purposeful Strategist. Please email any questions or suggestions to belden at mancus.com. In addition to being available on our website, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you enjoyed this episode, we release a new episode weekly. Don't forget to subscribe. Thanks again, and join us soon for the next episode of The Purposeful Strategist.